Glenn. It's time for Preparing Our Hearts for Worship podcast. Well, Linda, it sure is. And then what a wonderful time, too, today. I'm here in the studio with my sweetheart, and we have a great song to talk about, too. And today we continue our series on heaven also. The song we are sharing today, I Surrender All, was an invitation to him when I gave my life to Christ. Praise God for that. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. The chorus goes, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pressures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit. Truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy loving power. Let thine blessings fall on me. This song is one of three most widely used altar service songs. It was written by Judson Wheeler Van de Venter. Judson was born December the 5th, 1855, to the parents of John Van de Venter and Eliza Ann Wheeler. He was one of their four children, three boys and a girl. They lived on a farm near Dundee, Michigan. He attended public schools there in Dundee. DeVenter's family were Christians and attended the Episcopal Methodist Church, where he gave his heart to the Lord at the age of 17. After school, he went to Hillsdale College, where he studied art and became interested in music. Upon his, gadru- upon his graduation from college, he was able to study drawing and painting by a well-known German teacher. He began teaching art in 1878 at Rucken School, to himself, help to him, helping himself financially, and taught in the public schools there for the next 15 years. He also served as supervisor of drawing and in uh, Sharon, Pennsylvania. Judson met and married Melissa Miller, a 21-year-old farmer's daughter. He moved in with her family in Summerfield, Michigan, and was employed as a painter. The next year, they had a daughter they named Cleo, who sadly died in 1902 at the age of only 20 years old. They had a son, Paul, born in 1888 while they were still living in Michigan. In 1924, Judson and Melissa had been married over 30 years when she passed away. Recognizing his talent for the ministry, friends urged him to give up teaching and become an evangelist. For about five years, he struggled between developing his talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. Then at last, he could hold out no longer, and he surrendered his all, his time, his talents. A new day was ushered in into his life. Van Deventer became an evangelist and discovered down deep in his soul a talent previously unknown to him. God had hidden a song in his heart and touched a tender chord. It was just a few days later, while he was at East Palestine, Ohio, the words of this song was ushered into his life. He was in the home of George Sebring, who was the founder of Sebring Camp Meeting, Bible Conference. 
I Surrender All was put to music by Whedon and first published in 1896 in the Gospel Songs of Grace and Glory, a collection of old and new hymns by various hymnists. Whedon, born in Ohio in 1847, taught in singing schools prior to becoming an evangelist and was a noted song leader and vocalist. His tombstone is inscribed with the title of this hymn, I Surrender All. Van Deventer traveled throughout the United States, England, and Scotland doing evangelistic work. Winfield S. Whedon, his associate and singer associated, him, associated with him for many years. Toward the end of his life, Van Deventer moved to Florida and was professor of hymnology at the Florida Bible Institute for four years in the 1920s. After his retirement, he remained involved in speaking and in religious gatherings. Van Deventer published more than 60 songs in his lifetime, but I Surrender All was the most famous. The original text includes five stanzas, the last of which is frequently omitted. Generally, the hymn has a message of submission and is typically used as a song of response or invitation. It can also be used as a song of dedication or commitment. Evangelist Billy Graham in Crusade Hymn Stories cited Van Deventer as a significant influence in his own spiritual formation, and he offered his own insight into the hymn, saying, One of the evangelists who influenced my preaching was also a hymnist who wrote I Surrender All, the Reverend M. J. W. Van Deventer. He was a regular visitor to, at the Florida Bible Institute, now the Trinity Baptist College, in the late 1930s. The students loved this kind of deeply spiritual gentleman and often gathered in his winter home at Tampa, Florida for an evening of fellowship and singing. We begin to surrender to God when we first accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It is a mistake to think that we can receive Christ's offer of forgiveness and then go out to live our lives as we please. From that moment of commitment, God has a claim on us, and we must expect Him to tell us how we should live. We should never fear to give God complete control over our lives. He loves us more than we love ourselves and he will only plan what is best for us. It isn't always true, as it was with the Reverend Van Deventer, that God takes us down a different path from that which we would naturally follow. But if he does, we may be sure that it will be a happier and more fruitful life than the one we would have planned for ourselves. One of the characteristics of many gospel songs is a repetition of a key word or phrase throughout the hymn. Each of the five stanzas begins with the line, All to Jesus, I Surrender. The refrain includes the phrase, I Surrender All, three times in the melody and additional two times in the men's part. The stanza all revolve around the key word. Stanza one stretches a complete surrender, all to him I freely give. Stanza two, the singer forsakes worldly pleasures. Stanza three, praise to feel the Holy Spirit. And stanza four, ask Jesus' empowerment to be filled with thy love and power. The song suggests what we must do to surrender to Jesus. 
and stands a want, we must freely give all to him. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Giving our all means that we must put his will first in our lives, as in Matthew six thirty-three. It also means loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, in Mark twelve thirty. In short, it means having the attitude that Peter expressed when he said, We have left all and followed you, in Luke eighteen twenty-eight. According to stanza two, we must humbly bow at his feet, all to Jesus I surrender, humbly at the feet, his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures, all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. Bowing at Jesus' feet is the expression of repentance that God demands, as we see in, John, in Psalms 51, 15 through 17. It demands that we submit ourselves to him and forsake all the worldly pleasures, as we see in Luke 14, 33. Paul was an example of complete submission to Christ in Galatians 2.20. In stanza 3, we must come with a desire to belong wholly to him. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, wholly thine. Let me know the joy of living. Truly know that thou art mine. Asking Jesus to make us wholly his is the attitude that Jesus demands of his followers, as we see in Matthew sixteen, twenty-four through 26. Only those who so live in Christ can know the joy of living, in Philippians 4, 4. Of course, for Christ to make us wholly his, we must make sure that he is wholly ours, by doing the will of the Father, as shown in Matthew seven twenty-one. As stanza 4 tells us, we must give ourselves to Jesus, all to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessings fall on me. Giving ourselves to Jesus simply means that we must give Jesus first place in our lives before all else, as we read in Matthew 10, 34-38. This should call to our remembrance the total commitment of the Macedonians, who first gave themselves to the Lord in 2 Corinthians 8.5, an example of one who surrenders himself to Jesus in order that he might know the true joy of living was the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.30-34. The chorus repeats the commitment that is made to each stanza to surrender all to Jesus. I surrender all. I surrender all, all to Jesus I surrender, I surrender all. Justin Van Deventer died on July 17, 1939, while living in Tampa, Florida, where he attended and taught at the Gospel Tabernacle. A few days later, he was buried at the Maple Grove Cemetery in Dundee, Michigan, his birthplace. During his lifetime, and it was says that Van Deventer wrote about 60 hymns. Now let's take a look at the topic of today about heaven. The evil one works hard to give a people the wrong idea about heaven. Jesus said of the devil, he lies 
when he speaks in his native language, for he's a liar and he's a father of lies. You see that in John 8, 44. His favorite lies about heaven are included in Revelation 13, 6, where it says the satanic beast opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who lived in heaven. Satan slanders three things, God's person, God's people, and God's place in heaven. He does this by not only attacking God and us, but by attacking how we see heaven. The forces of darkness have an interest in conveying false and non-Bible concepts of what heaven is really like. After he was forced out of heaven, Isaiah fourteen twelve through 14 says, The devil is bitter, not only toward God, but toward all of us, because that place is no longer his. He must really be mad, because he realizes we're now entitled to the home he was kicked out of. What better way for demons to attack than to whisper lies about the very place God tells us to set our hearts and minds on? As we see in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, Paul warned us to be aware of the devil's schemes in 2 Corinthians 2, 11, and put on God's armor to stand against them in Ephesians six eleven. One of Satan's favorite deception is feeding us lies about heaven. He knows this will full well destroy our joy in looking forward to being with Jesus. It will make us want the things of this world as if it were the only home we had. It will take away our desire to tell others about Jesus. Why tell someone a message about how to go to heaven when you think you're going to be a dull and boring and monotonous place to be? So, because of this, we should pray for God to show us the truth and break through this devil's lie as we see what the Bible says about heaven. Is heaven a real place, a physical reality? Heaven is an actual place in an actual location designed by God with people in mind. Beings have traveled to and from heaven, including Christ, as in John 1, 32, 633 and Acts 1-2. Angels also see Matthew 28-2 and Revelations 10-1 and humans as it shows in 2 Corinthians 12-2 and Revelations 11-12. Jesus speaking as the bridegroom to his beloved bride said to us, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. Heaven is that place the new earth where the heavenly city will be brought down to and relocated will be a vastly improved form of the present earth and will have much in common with it, light, water, trees, and fruit, as it says in Revelations 21, 1-2. People and animals see Revelation 6, 2-8 and 19:11. As a new car is a better version of an old car, but with the same essential components that make a car a car, four wheels, engine, transmission, steering wheel, etc. The new earth will be a far better version of the old earth, but with the same essential components. Heaven will be in, a, in, a, in the kingdom of the new earth and will therefore be very earthly in its properties. 
It's not only the dwelling place of God, but it's fashioned by God to populate the people. The present heaven is also people-friendly, designed with their God-given desires and interest in mind. Are we really supposed to think about heaven? When Jesus said to us, I'm going there to heaven to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be there with me, and also that you may be where I am, as in John 14, 2 and 3. He spoke as a groom to his bride-to-be. These are words of love and romance. How would anybody who loves her husband-to-be respond to them? She'd be thrilled. Not a simple day would go by nor a single hour in which the bride wouldn't anticipate joining her beloved. In that place, he prepared for her to live with him forever. Like a bride's dream of sharing a home with her groom, our love for heaven should be overflowing and contagious, just like our love for God. Our passion for God and our passion for heaven should be inseparable. The more we learn about God, the more excited we get about heaven. The more we learn about heaven, the more excited we get about God. What is heaven like? Heaven is both a country as depicted in Luke 19:12 and Hebrews 11:14-16 and a city as seen in Hebrews 11:16, 12:22, Revelation 21:12. A country is typically a large territory of varied geographics with citizens of diverse cultures and vocations, sometimes even languages, under one government that provides a common identity. A city is a place of many residences and near proximity. A city's inhabitants are subject to the common government. Cities usually have varied and bustling activities, community events, education, arts, and visitors. Heaven is and will be a place of great beauty, both natural created beauty and architecture, including streets of gold and buildings of pearls and emeralds, and precious stones, as we see in Revelations 21, 19-21. Heaven will have the advantages we associate with earthly cities, without the disadvantage such as crime, pollution, corruption. Heaven's gates are always open. People will travel in and out. Some bringing treasures into the city, see Revelations 21, 24-25, and 22-14. Travel outside the city that shows the city is not wholly in heaven, but merely in its center. The great city is the capital of an endless empire called Heaven Country. See Hebrews eleven sixteen. There is a universe outside the city's gates to which the citizens have free access. Cities are characterized by visitors coming in and occupants going out for various reasons. What will we do in heaven? Rest from our labors on earth as in Revelations fourteen thirteen. Heaven's work will be refreshing, productive, and authoritative without futility and frustration. Perhaps it will be like the work Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. See Genesis 2.15. But 
before sin brought the curse on the ground with its thorns, as in Genesis 3, 17-19. Our work will be more purposeful considering Christ's redemptive work and the glory it will have brought. Eating and drinking and celebrating at the table with Christ and the redeemed saints from earth, communicating and fellowshipping and storytelling and rejoicing with them. Reference Matthew eight eleven, Luke twenty two twenty nine to thirty, and Revelations nineteen nine. Communication, dialogue, corporate worship, and other relationship building interactions all take place in heaven. Reference Revelations one twenty two. Saints and angels and God Himself will interact together, building and deepening their relationships. Worship God as seen in Revelations five. 13 through 14, and 7, 9 through 12. Multitudes of God's people, of every nation, tribe, people, and language, will gather to sing praises to God for His greatness, wisdom, power, grace, and mighty work of redemption. Will heaven be an eternal nap time or vacation? Or will it have activities and responsibilities? In heaven will serve God. See Revelation seven fifteen. Service isn't passive, it's active. It involves fulfilling responsibilities, carrying out duties, expending effort, having energy and creativity to the work as well. This will be work with lasting accomplishments, unhindered by decay and fatigue, and enhanced by unlimited resources. In heaven, we will exercise leadership and authority making important decisions. We will reign with Christ in heaven, as we see in 2 Timothy 2, 12, and Revelations 3, 21, also 22, 5. This implies designated responsibilities for those under leadership, like we see in Luke 19, 17 through 19. We judge or rule over the world, and we judge and rule over the angels, reference 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. The concept of endlessly floating on the cloud, doing nothing but singing and strumming on the harp, is just not rooted in the scripture. Who will be in heaven? Well, there may be others we don't know of who God has created or will create in the future, we know the following would be in heaven. God himself, as seen in Deuteronomy 26.15 and Matthew 6.9. All God's people covered by Christ's blood from earth who have died. See Revelations 4-5, through Luke 16.22-25, Hebrews 12.23. And continues righteous angels. See Luke 2.15, Matthew 28.2, and Hebrews 12.22. Will there be animals in heaven? Elijah was taken up to heaven by a chariot pulled by horses. See Second Kings 2.11. We're told there are horses in heaven, as in Revelation 6, 2 through 8, and in 19.11. In fact, there are lots of horses, enough for the vast armies of heaven to ride. See Revelation 19.11 and Second Kings 6, 17. 
Other animals aren't mentioned in the Revelation passage, presumably because they don't play a role in Christ's second coming. We see an army bringing deliverance, ride horses, not Dalmatians and hedgehogs. But isn't it likely that since there are innumerable horses in heaven, there are all kinds of other animals too? Why wouldn't there be? Why would we expect horses to be the only animals? If there were no other animals, there would be no horses. In Isaiah 65, 17, God refers to creating a new heavens and a new earth. In subsequent verses, the text seems to move back and forth from the millennium kingdom to the new earth. God makes clear he will have animals living there either in the millennium or the new earth, or both, Isaiah 65:25. Some also argue for animals being in heaven based on Ecclesiastes 3, 19-21, which says, Man's fate is like that of the animals. All go to the same place. However, in the larger context of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is simply talking about the outward appearance of death. Men and animals both die and we can't see where they go. Scripture tells us elsewhere, however, that man has an eternal soul. It tells us he goes one or two places at death. Animals are not said to have eternal souls. They are not said to relocate when they die. The presumption would be that at death they cease to exist. However, this doesn't mean beloved animals won't be in heaven. I once read Billy Graham's response to a little girl's question. Will my dog who died this week be in heaven? Graham replied, If it would make you any happier, then yes, he will be. Animals aren't nearly as valuable as people, but God is their maker and has touched many people's lives through them. It would be simple for him to recreate a pet in heaven. I see no reason to believe he wouldn't if it would bring his children pleasure. Romans eight eighteen to 22 says, that a whole creation was subject to suffering and brutality because of human sin. The creation groans in longing for the liberation that will be coming to humans and thereby to all creation itself. Creation is under man's dominion and will share the rewards of his redemption just as it shared the punishment for his sins. Animals are, sent, are a central part of that creation, next to man himself, the most significant part. After all, besides his wife, Adam was called upon to give names only to the other parts of the creation, the animals. See Genesis two nineteen twenty. He worked in the garden, but he wasn't invited to name the vegetation. Clearly, the animals had a certain qualities that set them above all other creation. They were to be special to man, and he'd name, his naming them makes his connection to them personal. If the new earth is all the best of the old earth and more, then we should expect to con it to contain animals. If the animals weren't part of the new earth, this would seem to be an obvious oversight. 
Eden was ruined through sin and will be restored through Christ's reign of righteousness. All that was part of Eden and then made wrong through the sin of the first Adam, we would expect to be part of the new earth, made right through the virtue of the second Adam. Would God take away from us in heaven what he gave for delight and companionship and help to Adam and Eve in Eden? Would it revoke his earlier decision to put animals with man and under man's care? If he remakes a new earth with new men who look very much like the old men, only perfect, wouldn't we expect him also to make new animals who will presumably look like the old animals, only perfect? On another topic, do we go to heaven or hell immediately or do we sleep until resurrection? At death, the human spirit leaves the body, Ecclesiastes 12.7, and goes either to heaven or hell, Luke 16.22. There is an immediate conscious existence after death, both in heaven and in hells. See Luke 16.22 and Luke 23.43, also 2 Corinthians 5.8. And finally, Revelation 6, 9. Well, there's another one, Philippians 1, 23. There is no soul sleep, a period of unawareness preceding heaven. Some Old Testament passages do not reflect the fullness of the New Testament revelation concerning immediate consciousness upon death. Fallen asleep in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and similar passages is a euphemism for death describing the spirit's departure from the body, ending our conscious existence on earth. This sleep refers to our outward inanimate appearance of the body that is buried in the earth. The physical part of us sleeps until the resurrection while the spiritual part of us relocates the consciousness existence in heaven. See Daniel 12, 2 and 3, also Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, and Revelations 6, 9 through 11. Every rev- reference in Revelations to humans talking and worshiping in heaven prior to the resurrection, as in Revelation 20, refutes the notion of soul sleep. But death is certain. We will all face it. Are you ready? Will you go with us? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from hell and trust him for your salvation today, right now. Well, that's it for our study this week, Linda, about heaven. Heaven's going to be neat, Glenn. Would you play I Surrender All on the clarinet for us? Okay, Linda, here goes.
We always enjoy having you here with us on our Preparing Our Hearts for Worship podcast, and today is no exception. We always look at the old-time hymns, the authors, and events related to writing of their songs. We hope you have been informed and enjoyed yourselves. Our music has been distributed to the web, and you can hear it by searching the web for the music of Glenn Dawson. On some of the services, you can punch the like button, and we appreciate it when you do that. It helps our ministry and keeps us going. Our program is part of the Glenn Dawson Evangelistic Association. We're a nonprofit organization dedicated to sharing Jesus with everyone. We enjoy hearing from you, and you can write us on our pro- platform you are hearing us on, our under construction webpage at glendawsonea.com. Next week and the weeks to come, we'll be answering some questions like these. Will we become angels when we go to heaven? In heaven, will will there be disembodied spirits floating in the clouds, or will we have bodies? After death, but prior to the resurrection, what will we be like? What will our arrival in heaven be like? In what sense will believers be judged in heaven? Will we know everything in heaven? Will we continue to change, grow, and learn once we get to heaven? Will will time no longer exist in heaven? Once in heaven, will people know and recognize those, those they knew on earth? In heaven, will we have our own places to live? Will there be privacy in heaven? Will there be private ownership in heaven? Do people in heaven remember what happened on earth? Do people know what's presently happening on earth? Do people in heaven pray for those on earth? And on the other side of the coin, what will hell be like? We look forward to seeing you again next week on Preparing Our Hearts for Worship. God God be be with with you. you. Goodbye for for now. now.